Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers. 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 38 on AFI's top 100 list of films. This is 1948's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Starring Humphrey Bogart. Uh, a friend of the show and returning actor. Right, we saw him on The African Queen. We sure did. And I don't actually know if we'll see him again, but something tells me we probably will on this list. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I, I think you might be right. I think there may be one more film that he's in. Well, it's interesting because this film, though he is the leading man starring role, movie poster shows him front and center, he's really not the protagonist of this film. No, by no means. And maybe to hear more about that, we should get a plot synopsis. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is the story of Fred Dobbs and Bob Curtin, two unemployed Americans begging in Tampico, Mexico. After working on an oil rig for Pat McCormick, who tricks the two out of their pay, they find him and collect their back pay using violence. Back in Tampico, the two meet old prospector Howard in a boarding house who tells them of the virtues and whatever the opposite of virtues is, of gold mining. As they become interested but discover they don't have enough money, Dobbs learns he's won a lottery, allowing them to pool all of their money for a prospecting excursion. As they leave Tampico, their train is attacked by bandits, but they fight them off. They arrive at their destination and head into the Sierra Madre Mountains. Eventually, they discover gold and begin to mine it, Though, as they accumulate a larger and larger fortune, Dobbs becomes more and more suspicious of the other men. They divide their gold, and each man hides their stash. Curtin heads to town for supplies and meets a man named Cody who follows him back to their camp and hopes to join them in the mining. The group eventually decides to kill him, but before they do, they note the approach of bandits led by a man in a gold hat. They prep for a fight and Cody converses with the bandits, but a firefight ensues. The bandits are driven off and the Federales arrive to attack them, but Cody is killed, of course, in the firefight. The men learn that he was trying to provide for his family by seeking fortune and not fame, but just fortune. Shortly after, Howard is approached by villagers to help save the life of a boy who almost drowned. He's able to do so. Though he returns to the group, the villagers approach him and insist he must return to the village to be honored. He plans to meet up with the others and returns to the village. Dobbs becomes more and more paranoid and eventually tries to kill Curtin, but is unsuccessful. Curtin crawls his way to the village to meet Howard, and the two plan to head back to confront Dobbs. Meanwhile, Dobbs heads to Durango, but almost dies of thirst. He's confronted by the man with the gold hat, and what remains of his men, only two guys, and they brutally kill him and take his goods, but dump the gold, mistaking it for sand. When the bandits attempt to sell the donkeys and goods in Durango, they are uncovered as thieves and are executed by the Federales. When Curtin and Howard arrive, they retrieve everything but their gold, learning that it was dumped. They try to find it as a dust storm kicks up, but realize that it's all been blown away. 
As they laugh off the ridiculousness of their plight, Howard explains that he will stay with the villagers as their honored guest. He urges Curtin to take his share of the money for their equipment and seek out Cody's widow in Texas and to pursue his dream of working in the peach orchards. So interestingly, that sand, which is actually gold, that blows away. Howard says that it's going back the place they got it from. So there's this really strong naturalist element this ends on that the gold taken from the mountain has to return to the mountain yeah well it's just like when uh howard as they leave the mountain insists that they thank the mountain and the the other men are uh, remark sort of on his strange it's superstitions i guess it's superstition but it's also anthropomorphism uh of the mountain right that they're like you you you're talking to the mountain like it's a woman and he and you know he's like oh no woman's ever treated me as good as the mountain yeah and also that we opened it up and so we're here to heal the wounds right so right, they talk right. about it in that way as well and of course sierra madre is what mother mountain i believe so yeah so again another anthropomorphization of the mountain which we don't yeah. ever hear sierra madre in the film but it being the title i think that all brings that pretty clearly to the fore yeah no I, maybe at the don't they at the very end say something about the sierra madre i don't i didn't i don't recall if they did but it certainly wasn't something that they brought up a lot yeah if if they said it they only said it once but i may have made that up and they always are talking about like hey this mountain or that mountain they really don't yes. say this is this mountain and it's very famous because it's a very famous mountain you'd think people would have already prospected it right 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 but in any case the pivotal scene that I have chosen for this film actually occurs pretty early on, thinking about the dangers of gold mining, not the actual workload, even though that's pretty grueling that we see pretty mm-hmm. early in the film, but what it does to a man's mind. Mm-hmm. So this is about 10 minutes in. This is where they first meet Howard in that boarding house. And let's take a listen. Let's. Mexico? Why, sure there is. Not ten days from here, Berea and Pack Trainers are mountain waiting for the right guy to come along, discover a treasure, and then tickle it, which lets them have it. Question is, are they the right guy? Ah, <laughs> uh, real bonanzas are few and far between, but take a lot of finding. Say, answer me this one, will you? Why is gold worth some 20 bucks an ounce? I don't know, because it's scarce. A thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months, one of them's lucky. One out of the thousand. His find represents not only his own labor, but that of 999 others to boot. That's uh, 6,000 months or 500 years, scrabbling over mountains, going hungry and thirsty. Now, it's a gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and the getting of it. Never thought of it just like that. Well, there's no other explanation, mister. Gold and stuff ain't good for nothing except for making jewelry with gold teeth. <laughs> ah, gold's a devilish sort of a thing anyway. You start out, you tell yourself you'll be satisfied with 25,000 handsome smackers worth of it. So help my lord and cross my heart. Fine resolution. <laughs> After months of sweating yourself dizzy and growing short on provisions and finding nothing, you finally come down to 15000 then 10 Finally, you say, Lord, let me just find $5,000 worth. I never asked for anything more the rest of my life. $5,000 is a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, here in this joint seems like a lot, but I tell you, if it was to make a real strike, you couldn't be dragged away. Not even the threat of miserable death would keep you from trying to add 10000 more. 10, you'd want to get 25, 25, you'd want to get 50, 50, 100, like roulette. One more turn, you know, always one more. <laughs> It wouldn't be that way with me. I swear it wouldn't. I'd take only what I set out to get. Even if there's still a half a million dollars worth lying around waiting to be picked up. I've dug in Alaska and Canada and Colorado. 
I was with the crowd in the British Honduras where it made my fare back home and almost enough over to cure me of the fever I'd caught. Southern California and Australia, all over the world practically. I know what gold does to men's souls. So what I like about this scene is it very quickly lets us know what this film's about. It is about the slow deterioration of these men, mostly Dobbs, Humphrey Bogart's character. Yeah, 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 yeah. In a way that you can say, oh, this gold is cursed. But really what it is is that some men's minds or all of their minds, because it does affect the others to a lesser degree, it seems like, Mm -hmm. are just bent toward perhaps greed, selfishness, and paranoia. Yeah, absolutely. And and they make that pretty explicit, right? Like that the you know that the gold does things to, and and i think actually some one of the characters in the film says it's not the gold it is the greed right don't they say it? or again that may be me just making it up as i <laughs> watched it well howard says i know what gold does to a man's mind there at the end of her pivot but i don't know if anyone says it's not the gold it's the greed but howard later in the film says like well you know after he's cleaning up Curtin from being shot by Dawes rather ineffectually, mm-hmm. if you can right. shoot a guy where you're trying to execute him and he's able to crawl away and the next day go off riding after you, you're pretty bad at what you're pretty, doing. Pretty, pretty bad. I mean, when he shot him, I was quite surprised. Um, and then was even more surprised that it was a pretty minor wound. Yeah, just arm in a sling, superficial. Right, and that Dobbs, you know, Dobbs shot him twice, or at least shot at him twice, and then came back to check him out and was like, oh yeah, he's dead. Dobbs, you're not paying attention. Well, he's also mentally unstable at this point, I think. True. Agree. But Howard, when he's dressing Curtin's wounds back in the village, says, well, you really can't blame him. You know, that's a lot of pressure, $105,000 of gold, which, Ethan, I know you love calculators. <gasps> let's, let's do it. And let's see, so $105,000 in 1925. So it would be $1,496,668.11 in 2017 money. So a chunk of change. It's a big fucking chunk of money. So this directly opposes what Dobbs tells Howard earlier. Of course, he's drunk and he's just met him and says, you know, I wouldn't let gold corrupt me. I would go out right. there for what I would need and I would leave. But it becomes more and more and more throughout the course of the film. When they finally do close up shop, he just can't like get out of his own head long enough to just make good decisions. I mean, he gets killed by the bandits at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Actually, not even the end of the film, right? So at 20 minutes left, he kind of just disappears and even find his body again at the end. Yeah. So it's like it's like Humphrey Bogart had to leave for filming something else or something. It's kind of abrupt how he leaves. There's actually an interesting thing that I read about this film. That particular scene, his death scene, was supposed to be considerably more violent in that apparently they filmed the scene with his head being chopped off and rolling into the the, the little uh, pond or whatever it is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the censors said... No, 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 no. Um, and apparently Humphrey Bogart was was actually quite upset about not having his gory end scene in the film. Oh, that is unfortunate. I feel like it'd be more in line with the film for that to yeah. have occurred, which clearly was their initial intent. So that's not surprising to me. But my point about 
his death is that if you were with his companions, nothing would have happened. Right. Absolutely. There are three bandits left. There are three guys. They all have guns. Of course, he has no ammo left because he's in a disturbed state of mind. And Curtin took the bullets out of his gun and he left Curtin's gun with what was supposed to be Curtin's body. It's such a lot of bad decisions by Dobbs there. Yeah. And and I feel like so much of this film is watching Dobbs make poor decisions, even from the get go when he begs from the same man three times in a row. And it's like, dude, you literally just begged from this guy one scene back um, and he gets called out. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, f- for as much as, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart is the headliner here who gets top billing, he is a, a pretty bad character. He's a pretty scumbaggy character, and we see him be scumbaggy. We see him be shitty. At the very beginning, when he throws water on the little Mexican child trying to sell him lottery yeah. tickets, right? Yeah. Um, so this is a character who is morally bankrupt from the beginning and who only falls deeper and deeper into this moral bankruptcy, right? The the more uh, tempted he is, the worse he behaves. Yeah, and to say a little bit more about his poor decision-making abilities, he meets Curtin, a fellow American bum, which I don't know why they're bums in Mexico, why they're not back in the United States. I assume that would have been something that was covered more fully in the book that was this was based on, because of course right. it's a, based on a book. Yet another uh, adaptation from a novel. But he goes to McCormick, and McCormick's like, oh, you're in luck. I just lost the guy that I needed to do this job, so you're in. So he goes and meets Curtin on the barge, and he's like, oh, fancy seeing you here. But it's like, guys, that should have been a major red flag <laughs> that this guy was conning you. He's telling you his story that you're the last one. How is it that, like, what are the chances that you're both the last one, the last bums that get the last job? Anyway, right. so I was going to say about that final scene with Humphrey Bogart in it where he drinks from that pond. I thought, yeah. this is stagnant water, and this yeah. is only going to make his mind deteriorate faster, which I thought would have been really resonant with what the film was trying to do. Yeah. And the reason I say that is because I see this as a very Poe-like plot. Yeah. A story of all the negatives of humanity, slow mental deterioration that just spirals further and further out of control. Right. And and, and just like uh, so many of the works of Poe, as you pointed out, we are meant to at first seemingly sympathize with Humphrey Bogart's character, right? He seems like the leading man. Um, he's giving top billing, blah, blah, blah. Um, but as the, and, and of course we do see him do a few good things, right? Like he does cut in curtain. He, you know, tosses the cash to the boy who sold him the ticket. Um, there are moments where you're like, Oh, he's maybe not a terrible person. But the farther along we get into the film, the more his mental t- st- mental state deteriorates, um, and and we see it right. We really see it um, in as close as you can get to a you know sort of first person narrator in a film like this without having voiceovers, right? 
Yeah, and I also think that he is maybe slightly less of a jackass where it doesn't count. But when the chips are actually down, that's where he experiences these greater failings. And right. so I think that writing's kind of there on the wall. One thing I would have liked to see with this film, maybe it's asking a little bit too much, but I thought in order to further that connection you were talking about between the audience who knows this character, or rather the actor, right? They know Humphrey Bogart. They expect mm-hmm. something about him. The fact that he is basically one of the major villains of the film, I thought we could have put it more behind his eyes in that when you see Curtin trying to get that Gila monster out from under the mm-hmm. rock that we don't get the satisfaction of seeing Curtin actually see it go under the rock, right? Like right. to make this more skeptical of the other characters to not show Howard go off and save the kid as the medicine man, have that also right. be a mystery. I feel like we could make this a more paranoid film for the audience as well with Dobbs as the audience surrogate. Yes. Although I would say that if the film did that, which I think would be much more interesting not to say that this film isn't interesting by any stretch of the imagination um but had we done that right then we no longer um get the opportunity to see dobbs's deterioration right like that that would force us then as audience members to uh, to, to be on his side right and i think the film wants to condemn him Sure, but I think we could be on his side also kind of have this hesitance about like, oh boy, he's yeah. uh, getting harder to stay in his corner. You know, I think that'd yeah. be an interesting relationship with the viewer in that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you in, in, in that respect, but I but I do think at, at this film's core, it is making a very clear statement, right? And it uses Dobbs to do that. Yeah, I mean, because we know this because at the end of the film, our other two primary characters laugh off this whole 10-month-long slog and the fact that they've been shot at or shot physically. They've seen someone die, or at least someone they sort of knew. They had resolved upon killing a man. Right. There's a lot there that they kind of just say, oh, well. Well, And, and of course, don't they all shoot at least one person in that, in, in the, the early scene where they hop on the train, right? Like they all kill bandits. Yeah. And that's handled pretty cavalierly, which maybe we'll talk about in our three questions because there's, there's a little something going on there, a little extra. Yeah, I think so. So why don't we turn to those three questions, Ethan? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. What do we owe to this film? I think, without a doubt, watching this film, there was no way that I could not think about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, that's a good point. I see so many grumblings, rumblings, bumblings of, I don't know why I said that weird trio of words. You're John, you're John Madden all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are so many little bits and pieces that feel like they were mined uh, ironically to say that um for raiders of the lost ark um this this is an adventure story uh and they make a they make a comment one of the characters makes a comment i think it's i think it's dobbs who says you know i'm gonna get all this money and i'm gonna go sit and read adventure stories on the beach or no sorry it's uh it's the old guy uh howard or whatever Mm -hmm. his name is um, like he's gonna go read like comic books and adventure stories on the beach with all his money, right? Like, and it, it, which is such a meta thing here. This 
is absolutely a film that influences, I think, these advent these adventure stories that that you know Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great example of. Yeah, I would agree that this feels very Indiana Jones like. They're only ten years in what time they're set in difference, right? Yeah. right? Mid to late thirties for Indiana Jones, and we're in the mid to late twenties for this film. I also think that the ways in which the story plays out, and maybe this kind of gets us ahead of a few questions, but I think it's pertinent here as well, is that there are these moments like the train scene where they're shooting bandits that we mentioned already Mm -hmm. by itself just feels like spectacle, right? It feels like, okay, they're having this like shooting level on a train, right? It feels like a a video game in that regard. Yeah. But it wraps around in a way that pays off. And I would argue that, pretty much all the scenes in this film, even though they feel like, okay, what is this about? Eventually brings itself back into the story. I think Indiana Jones does a little bit of that as well, right? We definitely liked those films when we watched them, but Mm -hmm. I do think that those are tended more toward the modern like spectacle, right? You've got the plane turning in a circle and he's doing the fist fight with the big German. And Mm -hmm. whereas this one is a little bit more focused on, all these things have to pay off. I think the only scene that we see for spectacle's sake is where they're fighting McCormick in the bar. Although maybe the argument for that is even when they're fighting McCormick and they take him out, they could take all of his money, but they just take what they're owed. They, yeah, they just take what they're owed. Which again leads into this, this such an interesting... This is why Dobbs is an interesting character, right? Like He has redeeming qualities at times. He doesn't take more money than he's worth. He talks about how he would never take, you know, he would, the, the, you know, he wouldn't try to get more than he wanted on a on a prospecting trip, right? He has moments of being a good guy, but at the same time, he's also like, let's murder Cody. Um, he literally tries to murder his partners. You know, he gives into this paranoia. So we spend all this time trying to, and and this is, I think, the difference between something like Indiana Jones uh, and this. Indiana Jones obviously is much more of a a callback to serial films, which are much more uh, spectacle focused, right? Action focused. This does ask questions about like what what does greed do to a man, right? What does greed do to us? Um, and and I think actually, perhaps uh, to continue this question, I don't think that you have something like Lord of the Rings, which comes out, I think, only a few years after this as a novel, um, without at least a small influence from Treasure of the Sierra Madre, right? Um, because the Lord of the Rings is also about the temptation of of gold, right? And you, there are different ways you can read that, whether it's supernatural or, or or otherwise. But you could read this as the curse of the gold, right? They put that out there for us to eat up, right? Yeah, and I think continuing that connection that you're delving into, pun intended, is mm-hmm. something like Breaking Bad. We've got absolutely an absolutely. anti-hero who succumbs to greed, right? There's gold in these mountains. Let's get as much of it as we can. When originally it starts out for both characters, just what we need, just enough to solve right. this current problem. But we see very quickly how that spirals out. And I think, you know, I think Vince Gilligan would be crazy to say that he's not influenced in some way by, yeah. if not this film, films like it. 
Well, and this, of course, is a pseudo-Western, right? Like, this is both an adventure story and a, a pseudo-Western. And Breaking Bad is a Western. It is a modern Western in, in the, you know, the clearest sense of that term. It's set in, you know, Al- Albuquerque. Uh, it's shot. I mean, I would be, I would be beyond surprised if, if we weren't able to pull, if we were to really sit down with however many hours of Breaking Bad there are and not find specific shots that, that mimic this film. Yeah. They very clearly share a lot of DNA, but Ethan, we should turn to our second question. Yes. Do we care about this film? I think, I think I do. Absolutely. I I think that this asks big questions and questions that are worth debating. And I think that it treats such questions in a complicated and complex way, because this is at the, at the heart of it, this is a film about greed and how do we approach greed? Are we all deep down greedy? Um, How do we defend what we believe we've earned or what we just believe we deserve? Right. Uh, So, so yes, and 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 I will say that this film, all two what two and not quite two and a half hours, is compelling. I mean, it it's an interesting film to watch both visually and uh, in terms of the plot, in terms of the the screenwriting. It's yeah, I care about this film. I think that it, we we've thought about it quite a bit, and of course, I love Treasure. And I am well documented to liking thematically resonant films with neat plots, right? The idea mm-hmm. that nothing is wasted, there's an efficiency, there's an economy of scenes and language and dialogue. And I think this film does a really good job at doing that, which, you know, maybe bears some further scrutiny in that the neatness of plot is certainly not something that holds up in our day-to-day lives that mm-hmm. there's not all these things that wrap around very neatly, but there's a certain expectation in fiction, particularly literary fiction or just literature, I guess that there is a masterful command of plot. And I think I'm really a sucker for that. And I think the AFI is as well. And I think that's why it's so high on the list. Yeah. And, and, and I think you're right. The, the plot in this film is there is not there is no waste in this film uh everything is important everything is used uh you know every every there there is no fat on this film or, or if there is it's it's very little right this film uses every minute um and uses it to further the plot or the questions or, 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 or the thematics, right? Like everything is used. Um, and I would 100% agree with you here. Well, Ethan, then to trim the fat on this podcast, let's ask our third and final question. Does this film hold up? Absolutely. It does. I think it does. I think that the, the only thing that this film may not have going for it is perhaps the lack of color. I think that this is a film that would actually benefit from color. It's a black and white film. Um, and, and, and I actually tend to really dig black and white films. I think that there are a lot of interesting things you can do visually. 
in those films that you aren't able to do, especially with early color. However, just this this plot, this screenplay, um, these actors, these set pieces, I think that just enough, uh, just, a, just a little bit of color, I think, would have helped. And then again, I, I waffle. At the same time, this is a film about gold, and not being able to see the color of the gold perhaps is also important or the man in the golden hat right the man in the golden hat right which they make a point to yeah so so maybe i should walk that back a little bit right ah this but this is how you know that this is a film that holds up right i'm already contradicting myself in trying to make one statement so i would agree visually however i think there are some pretty deplorable stereotypes of mexicans Yes, that you're right. I'm sorry. I, I got so caught up in in the things I liked about this film that I forgot about the fact that yeah, they don't they don't make the Mexican people out to be a- anything good. Not the federales, not the bandits, not the townspeople. It really seems like no one escapes a pretty heavily racist hand in depiction. Yeah. You know, the they call them Indians, the sort of native, yeah, sort of rural, right? Citizens. That uh, that basically get bamboozled, you know. Yeah. So th- that actually, yeah, I should walk everything back and say the the racism in this film is is pretty abhorrent and is and is hard to swallow. Yeah, I guess there's no two ways about it. And in 1948. I think we could expect them to know better. Yeah, and well, at the same time, I wonder for 1948, I guess, uh, at the very least, you don't have like some of the most awful and offensive Mexican stereotypes that you could have. You know what I mean? Like when we look at when I look at some of the Westerns I've seen in my life, I guess there's a way to make it a little worse. Oh, I don't know. I think that bandit commander is as bad as bad as they yeah. get in some ways yeah <sighs> so I, yeah i'm with you i mean it, <sighs> there which is at the end of the day is unfortunate because this is outside of its fucking racism th- this is a good film uh, but but of course that's to say like outside of the racism the KKK is a great organization right like that's fucked up too so I guess I can't really say that you know what I mean it, the racism is it, it runs deep enough that it's that it's hard to like really love this yeah and I think that's why we end with something of a mixed bag and yeah. there's some sand in our gold Ethan there there is I think um uh, you know what and I think actually the the black and white gold that looks like sand is is a great metaphor for this film right depending on how you approach it it's either great or it's worthless right and and the deep virulent racism can i mean if if we're going to take a certain stance can render this film unwatchable and that's maybe not the best note to end on but it's certainly a note to end on (laughs) i want to let everyone know we'll be back next week on patreon patreon.com slash spoilercast Yes. And the film we'll be watching is one that was something I watched a lot as a, as a kid. I've probably seen it 20 or so times. A Knight's Tale. A Knight's Tale. Late, great Heath Ledger in that one. Ah, uh, Heath. <laughs>
he's truly a treasure, just like the treasure of the Sierra Madre. And then we'll be back in two weeks back on the AFI. The film we'll be back with is number 37 on the list, The Best Years of Our Lives. Mm-hmm. But until that time, I've been Matt Fizzell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Spoilers? Spoilers? We don't have spoilers. We don't need any stinking spoilers. We don't need spoilers! There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.